Welcome back. I'm Shane McClelland. I'm Lori Gum. And these are the Q Files. On this week's show, we'll be chatting about Appalachian folk magic. To go along with that, we're also hosting our first ever giveaway. Be sure to listen to this episode for details, or if you happen to miss it, we'll post about it on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. Now, without further delay, let's dive in. Jake, welcome to the show. We're excited to chat with you tonight about uh, Appalachian folk magic and your most recent book, Doctoring the Devil, as well as your brand new set of conjure cards. But what we're honestly most excited about is getting to share Appalachian folk magic with more people. Lori and I are both huge fans of folklore and the mysteries that surround those stories and concepts, um, you know, because they embody the culture and beliefs of a people, and also because they're very often based in real life struggles and survival. I discovered Appalachian folk magic forever ago when I was trying to find a practice that connected me uh, or connected to me on a fundamental level and my own um, personal family history. At the time, I didn't know that there was a name for it and perhaps there really wasn't. Um, It was more framed as folklore and superstitions. But for folks who don't know what it is, and I would bet that's a fair number of folks, could you sort of introduce yourself and tell us the basics of your practice? Appalachian folk magic is, well, up until recently, it was simply regarded, like you said, as simple folklore and superstition. Um, As far as I have found, I believe back into the early 1900s is when it first began to be regarded as, uh, you know, superstitious or ignorant, especially by, you know, people whose families had, uh, you know, moved into the cities and the valleys and things like that. Right. so up until now, a lot of not only the knowledge itself, but also the reasoning why, uh, you know, folks did certain things and uh, practice in, you know, a particular or certain way uh, was being lost. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so what makes Appalachian folk magic sort of different from other magical practices? Well, the, uh, the entire practice in itself is basically an uh, amalgamation of a bunch of different um, like places of origin, like you know, you have influence from Ireland, Britain, uh, Scotland, Germany, a little bit of uh, stuff that can be traced, you know, back to Italy, and then a couple of you know small practices uh, that also you know lead directly back to uh, Israel or Judaism, as can also be found in uh, Hoodoo in the Deep South, um, right. As well as the, you know, the folk practices or superstitions that were also brought to, you know, Southern Appalachia, whether through uh, the African-American community or the indigenous tribes that, you know, lived in this location. Yeah. So one of the things that we we definitely wanted to to discuss was kind of that, like, blending of cultures and ideas. And I'm just going to, like, talk for a minute, but at at any point you want to correct me on something, that's fine. But um, in case anyone doesn't know... You know, Appalachia was really this like, I don't even know. It's like it's like where where people who were new to the country started moving to if they weren't going to live in a city. And a lot of those folks were um, like Scotch-Irish, but they were also, you know, living in communities with um, African-American folks, Native American folks. Um, and, you know, and a few, like you mentioned, a few other kind of just the, these small communities where you're just like, you know, like how did, you know, these these Jewish people end up in in the mountains or whatever, and they you know no one probably remembers anymore, but they still had their magic with them. And can you talk more about kind of like how, I guess that like blending happened? Well, it happens you know from the very you know start of the colonization colonization of America, um, because first you had like uh, I believe it was Juan Pardo and the De, De Soto expeditions that came through here. Um, yeah. as well as, you know, the Scots, the Scotch Irish immigrants who came through and then, uh, as more of the, um, you know, like colonial America was being settled, they eventually moved west across the mountains. Um, and with that, they also brought in the slave trade and, you know, all of that. Right. So there was, there was a lot of mixing, uh, you know, throughout the history itself, um, the way I, the way I like to see it is that Appalachian folk magic was not only built on a foundation of you know all these different origins, 
but also the actual history of Appalachia itself, because Appalachia was basically, you know, the American frontier. So I like to view it as uh, like America in its trial and error phase. And a lot of those errors never got corrected. And those right. errors, you know, through our history, like the Cold Wars, poverty, isolation, uh, you know, lack of medicine, you know, all that stuff basically had an influence on not only Appalachian folk magic, you know, by itself, but also our culture, our food, our dialect, you know, all of that. Yeah. What makes Appalachian folk magic work? You said in your book, um, what makes a root tick? And kind of, I guess, like explain the, the, the basics of what, you know, kind of empowers this practice. Well, the way I was raised, I was always told growing up, that I don't think it's biblically accurate. Most of the stuff I learned growing up isn't biblically accurate. <laughs> but um, I was always taught, you know, God only helps those who can help themselves. So right. whereas, you know, there are spirits and, uh, you know, the spirit of roots and everything like that that can help you, um, it, it's basically, it's kind of like a two-way relationship. So you do have to have, you know, not, not only faith in, you know, the spirits, the ancestors, and God, that the work is going to go through and come to fruition and manifest. But you also have to have faith in yourself because, you know, any kind of doubt will, you know, immediately kill the work. Because, like, you can even see it in uh, Scripture. Any time before Jesus went to, uh, you know, work on somebody or heal someone, he would always ask them, do you believe that I can do this? And they would say, yeah, Lord, I do. Right, right, right. Um, and... I, I feel like Lori might want to eventually chime in on the on this part, so I'm just going to like jump to it. Yeah. Um, but the one of the things that I and I know you've you've discussed this before, um, you know, kind of in your books and even on like Facebook and stuff. But um, mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about how I don't want to call it like the basis of Appalachian folk magic is like the Christian Bible, but um, can you talk about the influence of the Bible and kind of like the, um, the you know, like the, the paranormal magical stories in the Bible and their influence on this magical practice? Because I, I do think that is something that's substantially different than pretty much anything else outside of like um, hoodoo or something. Yeah. So the way that I see it is the actual basis or foundation of uh, Appalachian folk magic is the same for all American folk magic and generally all folk magic around the world. And that's basically sympathetic magic. Um, basically the premise that like affects like, or like attracts like, you know, all of the likes. Um, and then with that, that, uh, that, that kind of sympathetic belief also affected how Appalachia viewed religion and the Bible, especially when it came to such things as folk magic and folk medicine. You know, paired with our history of, you know, poverty, isolation, everything like that, that gave us this, uh, this spirit of independence that we have, where, you know, we are not afraid to, you know, sp you know, speak to the creator at any moment in time. We, you know, there's no, there's no kind of, you know, middleman needed or anything like that. And especially because for the majority of our history, a lot of our people were, you know, basically illiterate. So, yeah that also put a lot of um it's kind of like the written word became fetishized especially since it was regarding the bible that it was the actual word of god so it was seen as to it was it was believed that it held a lot of power because it was the words of the creator and you know that also connects to our tradition of storytelling because you know when the winters came and there wasn't anything you know much to do on the farm or on the land or you know in the mines or anything like that uh, that was basically one of the main forms of entertainment back then was storytelling. Yeah. Stories, you know, still mean a lot in our culture. So they would basically read the stories in the Bible and they would even see those, those stories as magical. So you'll see charms that are basically fabricated just like a biblical story using biblical characters, but for a, uh, like in, like in, like the subject of this, of the little, of, of the little tiny story being like, uh, healing a broken bone or healing a toothache or something like that. Like one of the most widespread ones is a toothache charm, which is basically just a small story of uh, like uh, St. Peter is sitting on a rock and Jesus comes up to him and asks him, you know, what's wrong? And Peter says, 
sometimes it, he says, you know, it's my tooth, it aches, or it's the pain in the head, you know, just in yeah. general. And the, you know, sto- the story has Christ say something like, whoever uh, remembers these words or carries them about his, his, his person will never be afflicted by the pain in the head again. And then that's usually, you know, either written down and carried, uh, you know, written down, burned in ashes, baked into a cake, you know, all different uh, forms. But even the Bible itself, you know, just even just one one singular verse can, it, it, it's believed to hold, you know, just as much power as the entire text itself, if that makes sense. Oh, no, absolutely. Uh, we, we've discussed a lot of kind of biblical themes in our show, and we always like to you know kind of relate things back to um kind of you know there's the bible is like a very paranormal book but it's also kind of this like phenomenal book of magic and you know people don't read it like that but when you really kind of pull it apart it's it's got all of these these steps in it and to me it makes a lot of sense to read that and and see like you know, if if we want to solve this problem, it looks like it was solved in this this story. And why don't we do something similar and see if it works? Exactly. I think it's in the, my first book, Backwards Witchcraft, that I talk about. Um, you know, there being examples of witchcraft in the Bible, like in Leviticus. You know, before the the new covenant was made, they would you know to heal leprosy, they would take like scarlet. Scarlet hyssop, and then they would take you know two live doves. They would take the dove into the house, and they would. You know, basically cleanse the house with a live dove, just just holding it and walking around with it. And then the other dove, they would kill over an earthen vessel, over running water. You know, all this entire you know ritual thing. Right. Yeah. Um, which many of the you know examples like running water, or you know blood being anointed on the, I think it was the tip of the right ear, the right thumb, and the right foot. Um, you know, all the different individual you know, patterns or rights, as I call them in backwoods, are seen throughout the entire Bible. Yeah. You know, a lot of these folks are, you know, it, it might be the only book they have or the only one that they're familiar with. And I, th- I think using that to draw upon kind of like a method to problem solve makes it even more powerful uh, because, you know, it's like you can relate to it in terms of that like sympathetic kind of magic kind of, but it's also, it makes it less, I guess, like scary because like you said, you know, there, there's, there's witches and witchcraft in the Bible, but that's usually kind of condemned. And then we have this whole, you know, offshoot of a practice where it's it's celebrated for some people, at least. Yeah, the way I see it is that the, you know, the practices, you know, throughout the Bible, like the one I just mentioned in Leviticus, it is that it's, you know, basic root. It is witchcraft. And while the Bible, you know, does condemn, you know, witchcraft or calling on spirits or anything like that. If you read the Bible in like, I don't know, you just have to read it in a certain way to understand that. Yeah. It, 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 like it was basically biased because the, the practices that were done in the name of Yahweh were fine. But those same practices done, you know, by other people, you know, especially the Egyptians were condemned. I mean, and that can even be seen in, uh, I forget which book it is, but it's the story of uh, Exodus. And Moses throws his staff down and it turns into a serpent. And then the Pharaoh, you know, throws his staff down and it also turns into a serpent. So you can basically see the same exact practices being practiced on both sides of the table. But because, you know, Yahweh was a vengeful God of a small nomadic people who, you know, basically in the beginning need to seem tough in front of all these other gods. Anything done in another God's name was basically uh, seen as witchcraft. And that's also where it differs again in Appalachia, because like the old witches, or as I call them in the second book, folk witches, um, right. you know, the people that, you know, people tell stories about that are, you know, halfway exaggerated. And they're like people turning into animals and all that kind yeah. of stuff. The same thing occurred in Appalachia because the witch was the outcast. So it was believed that anything she did or any power she had came from the devil, you know, and, or, you know, any spirit that wasn't of God. Whereas the witch doctor or conjure man, the person who, you know, helped people who were cursed or afflicted in some type of way that wasn't uh, physical or, you know, outrightly understood at the time, um, they were seen as, as having their power come from God. So it wasn't, it, 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 there wasn't any issue in them 
you know, look, you know, looking through the Bible and doing those practices like in Leviticus or, you know, anything that the Bible recommended, uh, especially in the use of songs, because uh, like I was always told growing up was uh, that the word Bible was like some kind of acronym that stood for Book of Instructions Before Leaving Earth. So that was basically like like viewed as instructions for getting through the obstacles of life, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, Absolutely. I think in both of your books, but definitely in, in um, Doctoring the Devil, you go through the sort of differences in magical people in the community. So there's like witches, mm-hmm. conjurmen, um, you know, like your like grannies, all of these these different people who kind of had, I guess, like different jobs, but they sort of overlap. And like with each title or like I don't know, like I don't even know if it's like a self-identified title or something, but um, mm-hmm. it kind of like some of them had stigma against them in the community. And can you just kind of tell us about that or like why it was? And I know before you said you know it, some of it is because they were they were working with God, whereas others were working with the devil. But is that really just the the only like distinction between these folks? Well, basically, yes. And some of the some of the stories of like folk witches. Um, you can see them, you know, helping people, you know, whether find lost objects, uh, lost livestock that had, you know, gotten out of the barn or anything like that. Uh-huh. Um, as well as, you know, picking up love potions, uh, you know, different forms of folk medicine as well as cursing. Um, except in the stories, the folk witch and her cursing usually took her anger out on, uh, people and animals. Um, Whereas the, you know, witch doctor or conjure man usually, you know, simply sent those curses, you know, right back to her. So you see all of these stories of, you know, witches turning up days later, uh, hurt in some sort of way based on, you know, whatever the conjure man or witch doctor did to inflict her curse back at her. Um, right. But yeah, regarding the different uh, degrees of practice, basically like a, a, a layout that I you know, kind of come up with in my mind while researching to try and, you know, further make sense of it, to try and like, kind of like organize it in a way. Because there were some stories of uh, preachers who would cast out demons and uh, would use like herbal medicine or anything like that. But they had no like kind of faith that like herbs or any kind of plants or animal parts had any kind of spiritual power in a way. And then there were, you know, some midwives who would, you know, do superstitious acts like uh, loosening all the knots in the house or putting an axe under the bed to alleviate the mother's pain or something like that. Whereas there were other midwives who were strictly like practitioners of the Western medicine during that time. And that was usually back during the 1800s, which was kind of like the DIY medical era because they came out with all sorts of different uh, at home medical guides, especially in Appalachia, because a lot of people, you know, they they didn't have access to uh, a doctor. So, I mean, you could, you know, go see a doctor. It would be a couple of days before the train came and then a couple of days to get there, maybe. But even then, there was no guarantee, you know, before telephones or anything like that, that the doctor would be there when you got there. He could be at another patient's house. Books like that generally taught people how to you know, like deliver a baby at home or sometimes even perform surgery, pull a tooth, all sorts of different things. And then along with that was the uh, certain people in the community who were believed to have been given some kind of gift from God and the Spirit, whether uh, it was the sight or the ability to stop the flow of blood, to cure a thrush in a child, uh, all sorts of things. So like half of the uh, like degrees or like job titles that I mentioned in the book were were kind of like established naturally in the community. So like if a child had never seen his father, then he had some kind of ability. If a child was born with a call, you know, over its face, then it was, you know, born with a sight. Whereas others, um, like yarb doctors, that was a learned practice that they were, you know, they just had a knack for it, if that makes sense. Oh, no, absolutely. One of the, the, the things with Appalachian folk magic that I've always found um, fascinating, and I guess it's really kind of like, all folk magic in general, no matter really where it's from. But um, yeah. folks folks were using this as like a way to survive and it was just another tool. And it makes sense that, um, 
you know, you get this like herbal aspect to it, but then you also get this like spiritual aspect to it because it's just stuff that you, you can't control because, you know, it's not like if you need medical care, there's a doctor like just down the road a bit. It's like just down the road a bit is like hours away. And I, I just, I think it's, it's fascinating because of, like the, the practical aspect of the practice. Yeah. I was just going to say something there. One of the things that uh, mm-hmm. strikes me about particularly folk um, magic and, you know, Appalachian folk magic is the practicality of it. And the fact that, you know, all we hear is local, 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 you know, this is, you know, all of Appalachian um, folk uh, magic, you know, is very different, can be town to town and village to village and yeah. using whatever is available, you know, practically using whatever herbs are available, or we see, you know, something like, uh, you know, voodoo translate into hoodoo in the Southern United States and all those kind of spells change because, you know, what kind of animals are available like chickens and things like that. So, you know, as Shane was saying, it's, it's about surviving and using those really, you know, local stories and local remedies. Um, I have a grandmother from West Virginia and I have a grandmother from Southern Ohio and it was just amazing their sort of different approaches to their own sort of, you know, healing charms and their own um, their own magic. They certainly didn't call it that, but um, it's really how they grew up and people surviving really, you know, with what's available to them. Exactly. Spinning off of, of Laurie's point there, like this this idea of this kind of hyper-local magic or hyper-regional magic, how do you think that applies kind of like to the, the modern time? And, you know, with more folks living um, kind of removed from nature and, you know, in more urban and suburban environments. Well, I think, uh, hold on, well, I just had a train of thought and I lost it. <laughs> Didn't even get to utter a word. <laughs> no, but I mean, just like if you were to kind of advise someone who wanted to, to start exploring this this way of, of, of practicing, but they lived in, you know, a downtown of a city so they, there's just not mm-hmm. there's not as many like resources i guess i don't even know because a lot of this stuff is like you know go to the crossroads or gather stump water and it's like that just doesn't exist when you live in a city i mean crossroads do but you, i don't know if you could really bury something without causing a lot of alarm yeah yeah that's true um <laughs> so yeah while you know, while, you know, the times and stuff have changed, um, human needs and desires haven't really. So while, you know, charms for um, getting the cow to come back to milk after being witched or something like that have, you know, basically been put into retirement. Yeah. Um, you know, there are still, you know, works and ways and practices to ensure like a good flow of money into the house to find work to find or keep love, you know, all sorts of different things like that. Now, in regards to like living in an actual city setting, that is at the point where I believe, I mean, because Appalachian folk magic is work. It's not just, you know, something, it's not just, oh, you like this candle and it's done. Like it, right. it, it's work. You have to keep at it. There are works that you have to feed for days and days and days at right. a time, sometimes months at a time. Because it's not only the fact of keeping the, the work going and keeping the root alive. You also have to show the spirits that you are, in a way, working toward, you know, whatever your goal may be. That, that's why you have to be certain on, you know, anything that you're doing. Because, you know, I mean, if you just give up on it, then, you know, or you change your mind and then you change your mind back again, you're going to have to start all over. No, I'm gonna say it, it stems from that idea of that like sympathetic magic where it's like you're you're using the tools that you know kind of in, not even necessarily nature is providing, but nature is providing like whatever the 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 energies are of of these tools, and you and you actually have to like work with them and and talk to them and and, and build that and kind of like orchestrate the arrangement to have the desired outcome. Yeah, and basically, like I say in in both of the books. Basically, whatever you do, God has just as much to do with it. You know, you have to put in that work because you are literally persuading the hand of God. You're, you know, you're right. trying to convince the Creator to, you know, manifest whatever it is that you're working toward. So, I mean, you know, you're going to have to put in some work for it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I absolutely, and I think that is something that's sort of, I guess, sort of different. Um, 
I know in like hoodoo and stuff, there's a lot of candle magic. Is that something that has been adopted by like Appalachian folk magic, or was it something that was always there? Well, yeah, can- candles and lamps have always lamps. Uh, been a thing because that was, you know, basically the only source of light, like the like the old kerosene lamps or whatever. Um, yeah. So yeah, they would, you know, especially do that, uh, and also because you know most of the time they are, you know, discrete workings, so they're not like a whole, you know, doll baby sitting somewhere with a nail through its chest. Right. <laughs> Um, it can be a little bit suspicious if you're not careful, <laughs> especially back during those days. That's when you start becoming more more of a, a witch to the community than um, a root worker. Um, yeah, that's <laughs> when people start blaming you for stealing, right. for stealing their cow's milk. <laughs> um, so I guess one of the, the things I meant to ask earlier, well, you kind of touched on it, but uh, this like region was heavily documented right um and i for whatever reason i'm blanking on the the like government agency that was doing that um but what ended up happening was they you know they recorded a lot of these this this folklore and these superstitions and we see it in things the book like um hoodoo conjuration witchcraft and root work or even like the silver bullet and other witch stories or the foxfire series how do you think those depictions and those specific recorded tales ended up influencing like the perception of this practice well primarily because all of the stories and superstitions that they would collect they were based they were basically just fragments of an entire you know like whole right. piece so they would collect them and then you know share them you know out west everywhere or you know in newspapers in big cities anything like that because they were just fragments or pieces of a puzzle that wasn't put together, they simply looked meaningless. And because they looked meaningless, people didn't regard them as holding any kind of power or sway over the daily lives of humanity. So therefore, it was regarded as ignorant or you know just superstitious. It was for the 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 uneducated in a way. Oh yeah, no, because I mean nobody I... ever like put the whole puzzle piece together for people. It was it was interesting because I I kind of like stumbled upon this through some of the some of those books and then I was like oh these are like the weird stories that like my grandparents would talk about or like like these like pieces of like family lore like my great grandpa did this or whatever and it it really started like there was like beauty in discovering that but when I went to go find you know more information on it like you hadn't published your f- first book and there really wasn't mm-hmm. a whole lot out there on this specifically yeah. like there was a lot of stuff where i would like look at it and i was like this is just hoodoo like there's a yeah like, there's a it may be a fine line but there's a distinction between the practices and i just always thought it was weird that like no one was um it's clearly a practice right and you can see that in the stories and you can just see it from other practices like it's very much related to these other things but it was always strange to me that when you would ask about it they were like oh like those are just like folk folklore and folk tales and you know old wives tales and i always thought it was just just strange and like have you have you i don't want to call it like discrimination but do you think like folks look down on on this ty- kind of practice I mean, depending, like, like folks in the city, definitely, um, it is still seen as, uh, you know, superstitious, weird, odd, or, you know, there's always the one fanatical, oh, that's double worship. Right. Um, so, yeah, there is, like, I don't know, you just, like, they just treat you like you're just some kind of backwater creature that just crawled out from under a Right, rock. yeah. <laughs> I guess it's interesting because not many other things were documented like that, right? There, there's you know countless other practices, but they weren't recorded in kind of like these these stories. And I, I just feel like the like the storytelling aspect of the practice, but also the fact that some of these were actually, you know, kind of written down. And maybe they're not like this random person remembers these few stories. Like it might not even have been a popular ones or like um, accurate. And before uh, like the core American Folklore Society or whatever it's called uh-huh. um, before they implemented certain rules for uh, like collecting research or doing interviews or anything like that they would collect these stories but they wouldn't have 
you know, and then they would publish them in like newspapers or books, but then they wouldn't have any notation of, uh, you know, who, who they interviewed or where that person was located or anything right. like that. So, I mean, there was no, there was no telling, you know, whether it was fake or not. Like one example is, uh, it's a old folk story regarding Melungeons in Appalachia. Melungeons are a tri-racial group of people from like East Tennessee, Southwest Virginia, uh, yeah. and Western North Carolina. It was published in a book called, uh, God Bless the Devil, Liar's Bench Tales, I think. I can't remember the name of the author at the moment. Uh, but it originally came out, I believe, in the 1940s. So that was like long before, uh, like the main folk- folklore society had impl- implemented any kind yeah. of rules like that. And one of the stories is basically like an or- origin story of Melungeons saying that uh, Melungeons were dark skinned and so mean because they like basically came about because of a unholy union between the devil and a uh, native woman. And it kind of fits into another story of uh, the devil coming to, uh, like he got into a fight with his wife in hell or something like that and came to East Tennessee for a while. Um, okay. But then left for some reason. And as he left, his footprint uh, like, uh, like scarred the earth, burned all the vegetation, everything. And that, that, that's the like, reasoning story for Rome Mountain because it has like all the bald on the mountaintops up there. Um, oh, wow. Like that's why there's nothing will grow there. Um, you don't hear any birds or animals. But then that also relates to another story where people believe that uh, Rome Mountain is actually a gate to hell. Because used to, they used to say uh, at the top of Rome Mountain, you could hear what people said were, were angels singing, like the, the angels in heaven getting ready for judgment day. Uh, well, then one guy from, I think he was from Missouri or something like that in the 1800s, came to Rome Mountain to basically figure it out for himself what that sound was. And he had some kind of weird fanatical experience where he fell into a hole while it was storming and all his hands were reaching for him and moaning and groaning. And he basically said he, he never told anybody anything until he was on his deathbed. <laughs> but he believed that uh, Rome Mountain was basically a gate to hell. And that the rainbow circle that often appears at the very peak that people call God's halo uh, was actually like a lock on the gate. Um, oh, wow. So it's kind of weird that, you know, that's where the devil walked. And then that's also a gate to hell. But then he also came here and like in the Melungeon story, it says, you know, he basically got with this native woman and had all these Melungeon children. But that they were so mean to him that he finally just stormed off and went back to hell. Because he said that it was better than the Blue Ridge. I mean, that's fascinating. Um, yeah, it's, it's weird how all <laughs> of them can connect at certain points in time. But back to the original wow. reason I was telling all three of those stories. Um, <laughs> it was published in in this book at the very back, but there was no, you know, there was no origin given for it, like where the author had heard it, where he had collected it who he heard it from, who they heard it from, what location yeah. or anything like that. Um, so in Melungeon studies, it's basically been chopped up to uh, like fake war, like it was just like fabricated or whatever. Cause they're, that's, that's basically been the only instance in like the research of the Melungeon that that has popped up like the earliest anyway. Um, so it's it just like has some, kind some of, guy like, who didn't like Melungeons. Time. Yeah, kind of, basically. <laughs> uh, but it still had an effect on the region itself because the story basically portrayed us as like being in league with the devil and that Melungeons were godless and soulless. And preachers would even basically, you know, basically preach at the pulpit, you know, in the churches that Melungeons were godless or, you know, anything like that. And it was considered like a, like a great notch on a preacher's belt to win over a Melungeon soul. That's another story that follows right after that is the winning of a Melungeon soul by a preacher. Oh my goodness. That's so, it, it's so wow. strange. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to ramble. No, it's, it's fine. No, it's great. Um, but I mean, I think that's what, what you touched on is kind of like the importance of, of studying these, these pieces of folklore and trying to determine, you know, if it's just some random guy who, you know, dislikes a certain group or a certain person and tells a, a story about them, or if it's, you know, recording some kind of actual like 
community belief or um, you know of part of everyday life. Yeah, and that that's the issue with like uh, like you know looking and researching folklore because there's always the the possibility of it being fake lore. Like the you know the person being interviewed could just come up with it because I mean we're we're a region of storytellers. Yeah. So <laughs> that's why in uh, in backwoods I only you know basically included things that I had heard or that my family had done that I had you know either heard from you know multiple sources kind of. So if I only, you know, found one instance of it, I didn't really include, especially if my family had never done it, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there's not really, especially at this point, there's no way to kind of verify a lot of these stories anymore yeah. or see if there's really others that are similar. You mentioned about, you know, of course, um, um, you know, sort of Judaism having an influence and, you know, there were obviously, you know, Jewish communities uh, that, that ultimately settled uh, um, in different places there. What do you see as a sort of, um, you know, the effect of, of or the influence of Judaism on Appalachian folklore? And, you know, Judaism has its own mystical you know, aspects of, you know, the Kabbalah and the Zohar and all those things. What do you specifically think is the sort of strongest influence, uh, indicator of influence within Appalachian folklore? The only instance that I can think of right now is uh, the act of placing bowls under someone's bed, whether it's cold, like cold water, or mm -hmm. usually just to uh, like a cold, uh, like a bowl of cold ice water, especially to break a fever. Hmm. Because that 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 was a common practice in uh, like in Israel as well, um, and I believe um, it it also became a kind of like a practice or an influence in Hoodoo in the Deep South as well. Interesting, interesting. Not to completely change subjects, but before we like use up all of our time, I wanted to ask about your your conjure cards. I guess like you know, kind of relating back to what we were talking about earlier, and um, folks using kind of what's available to them. Um, can you talk to us about, you know, the, the reading of like playing cards and how that um, maybe how that compares to like tarot and stuff? And then what can folks look forward to with with your deck of cards that you designed? And, and I love the Luna moth on the cover. That is that is just excellent. Very nice image. Thank you. So, yeah, I was my mother taught me how to read playing cards. I'm trying to remember the year. A lot's happened in the past 10 years. Um. <laughs> I was I was most excited because they they look very much like like playing cards and I I wasn't sure what to expect when I got them like if they I, I guess I was expecting honestly like a tarot card type situation but it was refreshing to see them stay true to their their nature. Yeah, I'm I'm really happy that you know they're not that much bigger than uh, like a standard yeah. size, uh, deck of playing cards. But my mother taught me to read playing uh, with just a normal deck of playing cards. And even even still today, I still have to look at the notes that she wrote down for me and like one of those old composition notebooks that you yeah. get from the Dollar Tree. So I, you know, kept wondering. I was like, "There's got to be a way that I can make this easier for myself and others." Because I hate because I can't read her handwriting or my own handwriting. <laughs> um, so I basically decided to kind of combine two different historical traditions or things that were done either. You know, you know, in all seriousness, like uh, whether people were looking into the cards for uh, answers to dire events in their life or whether it was just a pastime uh, form of entertainment, kind of like uh, yeah. reading leaves, which they used to do. Because there was also the tr tradition of kind of telling the, telling the future based on what dreams or symbols or what symbols you saw in your dreams. And the more I thought on it, the more I kept you know, seeing um, like dream symbols and folkloric symbols correlate to the meanings of the card that my mother taught me. Because used to, you know, you wouldn't, uh, if it was a bad dream that you had the night previous, then you wouldn't, you, you couldn't tell the dream until after you had had breakfast, because otherwise it was said to come true if you did. So I kind of decided to see if I could kind of combine them into one deck. So you not only like remembered uh, like superstitions and dream omens from the past, but it kind of like also helped you remember the meaning of the card itself if it was correlated. So like in the deck, the Ace of Spades, which is traditionally the, you know, the card of death is 
pictured with an empty baby cradle because there was always the superstition of uh, if you rock an empty baby, uh, baby cradle or, you know, rocking chair, basically anything that rocks, then it basically called death to the home. Oh, wow. And another, another one attached to that is if you dream of a, of a birth, then it's a sign of death. So yeah. I did that with the, with the whole deck, basically. Yeah, and I really love the uh, headless rooster. I mean, I think that's my, the, all the images are really striking. When you look at them, there's like a story unto themselves in, in the images. And the headless rooster also looks, you know, especially, um, you know, it's it sort of, obviously, this folklore is coming from people who are comfortable in nature and comfortable dealing with nature. And, you know, that headless rooster just kind of looks like dinner to me, too. <laughs> Um, and I thought it was, you know, a great sort of comment about, you know, meat and where we get our meat and there's this headless chicken. And I thought that's just totally appropriate. And I think you said it means, uh, it's a sign of a haint, um, or a spirit that didn't mm -hmm. have a proper burial. Is that true? Yes. Uh, because in, well, the way my family is interprets, interprets dreams is basically if you, if you dream of any kind of headless animal, that it's a sign of a haunting or a haint. Especially, uh, and I'll talk about another form of haint in uh, Doctrine of the Devil called a plat eye, which is basically, it's a haint, but like on steroids. Because a haint is just, you know, a person who's been buried either for a long, long time and they're, they never moved on, so they're basically bored. Or they don't know they're dead. You know, they're just basically a ghost. Whereas a plat eye is someone who not only died a tragic death, but their body was also not given a proper burial. So, I mean, the only way that I can like understand it in my mind is that a haint is usually a person who was properly buried, regardless of why they're a haint now or why they haven't moved on. Their body was, you know, held intact, kind of. Whereas the person who didn't have a proper burial, their body was open to the element. So, like old stories, you can see plat eyes showing up as all sorts of different things, whether it's just like um, a white, like a white bag flowing through the wind, or um, like a six-legged black cat. You know, anything that looks not natural, kind of. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's that's why I picked the uh, the rooster itself for you know that particular deck because um, the the rooster is you know basically kind of like a like a universal symbol of conjuring in American folk magic. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also one of my favorite cards because it took me the longest to try and get the colors on it right. <laughs> to try and like get the iridescence to show instead of just drawing an orange beautiful. rooster. It's beautiful. It really is beautiful and haunting at the same time. It's great. Yes. In explaining all this folklore, um, you know, uh, uh, particularly American folklore, is that, you know, it really comes from you know, the hunters and the farmers and, you know, the people that are out there in nature. You know, my, my family is a group of hunters and they have all of the stories. And, you know, that's where for my, in my family, that's where a lot of, you know, the strange tales or, um, you know, the farmers, you know, from year to year watching the fields and the animals. So much of our own family folklore, my, my grandfather, who was a fished was would was out in a boat every day on a lake and the stories and his own folklore that he he devised himself and his family had sort of about fishing and how to have good luck with fishing and all that you know just absolutely fascinating but it, it is these people you know i think that's why it it's so difficult for this to translate to the city is because it really is about nature um, it's about nature and God, and and that's the environs that you know this this really grows out of. Exactly, and that's why I think the you know the basis of all folklore, all superstition, originally comes from uh, basically fear of the unknown. Because even if we lost all this knowledge, I am positive that you know as more people you know moved into cities and everything like that, whenever you know folks would venture out into nature, they would still have that. Uh, that fear questioning them saying, you know, what else is out here? I feel like we're being watched, you know, anything like that, or, you know, why did this happen to me? Or oops, I broke a mirror. Why does that feel wrong? If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Or what the farmers like, like just, what, what did I do that, you know, my crops don't receive any yeah. rain? Like, you know, that, that what was different from this crop season than the last one. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, we all, we always, you know, re return back to that re reptilian brain 
So I'm positive that if, you know, somehow all of folklore or superstition, all of, all of this knowledge was just forgotten, we would basically start back at, you know, phase one and it would just start again. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that it would still be, you know, something, something similar to, you know, the prior folklore, if that, you know, makes sense. It's, you know, it's all based on survival and there's, even if it sounds strange and crazy and, you know, like one of those things that you just laugh at and it's a superstition, like it was started, you know, from even a tiny kernel of truth. And, you know, maybe there was layers of stories added to it to make it memorable or whatever, but the lesson is always, is always true in these stories. And, you know, that, and then that was just the easy way to, to pass down the lessons to keep your family and friends alive. Exactly. Especially, you know, without Western medicine or, you know, without uh, churches nearby for spiritual help, it often meant the difference between life and death, whether physically or spiritually. Absolutely. It kept you from the grave or kept you from the bottle. So how do you think that folks can um, kind of best use Appalachian folk magic during the the times that we're like experiencing now, which is, I guess, like a, a transitional period. There just seems to be a lot of like civil strife, emotional strife. Um, It seems like the world is either gonna, you know, not to be like too, I I don't know, like new age, but like wake up and realize that maybe there's a better way to do things. Do you think, you know, Appalachian magic has a a place in that or a way to kind of guide folks back to a more harmonious relationship? Oh, definitely. Because, I mean, it helped our ancestors for generation after generation. And it has only been, you know, removed from us, well, from, you know, the whole region in entirety for maybe like two or three generations. Yeah. Um, So thankfully, you know, most of it is still, you know, intact to continue guiding the heirs of Appalachia, whether, you know, over the entire Appalachian diaspora, whether it's, you know, you're you were born and raised in Appalachia or, you know, your family moved to like Texas, or I think some folks went to Washington state. I know I've gotten a lot of sales in Washington state. So I think that was, <laughs> that was where they also went. Yeah. Also Washington state kind of looks like some of the, the Appalachian states really. Yeah. I've, I've had to drive through those mountains before and they, <laughs> they make our, our mountains look like dwarves. I oh I didn't like how high those mountains were. It made me nervous. <laughs> well, the Appalachians are like really old, aren't they? Aren't they like one of the oldest mountain ranges or something? So they've they've had some yeah, time to um, to wear down. Literally, like older than bones. Like they're older yeah. than like like they started at a time when like bones didn't even exist. Like right. life hadn't even crawled out of the ocean practically. Yeah, right. You're. A- <laughs> a member of the LGBTQ community, right? Yeah. How does that kind of shape your practice in something that is kind of so heavily based on the Christian Bible? Well, for that, I had to do my own soul searching and realize that, you know, those particular portions of the Bible were mistranslated and they weren't meant for people like me. Because, you know, what I've learned researching it is that the text was actually supposed to you know, refer to pedophiles, um, yeah. which, you know, they changed it to homosexuals in, I think, 1956 yeah. or 46. They, they, they like do that. a lot of know. reinterpreting um, scripture to fit. Yeah, the there was like narrative. an error in one like version of the Bible. And right. then before they could correct it, there were a bunch of other versions based on that one uh, error-filled Bible. And then it created the whole, you know, anti-gay yeah. uh, thing. Yeah, and Shane and I always like to refer to, in many episodes, we referred to self-loathing St. Paul. Um, you know, he didn't help us out a bit, but uh, <laughs> yeah. there, uh, yeah, so, so yeah, it is, it is something to come to terms with, especially, you know, for me when I was younger. Yes, how do you come to terms with this if you, you know, you believe this, but yet it says this. And um, I think it's, it's your own personal reckoning with it all. It really is. God wants an authentic you. You know, that's probably the most important thing. Exactly. And like with my upbringing, because, you know, like we would go to church sometimes, but we wasn't like avid churchgoers. We was the kind of Baptist where like you go and get baptized as like, like, okay, I'm going to heaven now. And then you just do whatever, basically. Um, But like growing up, I always, you know, saw a distinct difference between the God that my family spoke of and the God that the church spoke of. Like to me, they were just two 
two entirely different entities. I think a lot more families would, would be, if they were honest about it, that that's family God and church God are often two different things. For sure. Exactly. Where can folks get your books and your, your conjure deck? Uh, they can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. I know they sell it on uh, Books a Million's website, but I, my local location doesn't really have it in stock ever. And then, you know, obviously from the publisher themselves. Yeah. And where can folks find you online and kind of all that stuff? Uh, they can follow me on Facebook at my author page, Jake Richards hyphen author. And then, and then I'm on Instagram as Jake underscore Richards one three. Just to state it again, the name of the book is Doctoring the Devil Notebooks of an Appalachian Conjure Man. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yes. So it's, it's basically like a like an organized recipe book, whereas Backwoods was like an introduction to the the works and methods and the the like the hows or the whys behind everything. Right. Yeah, and I mean, I I've, I've read both. I own both, and um, it's definitely it, it's so much easier to to read your books and kind of get the gist of it and know what it's about than it is sorting through um, the like 5,000 pages of hoodoo, conjuration, witchcraft, and root work, yeah. root work um, which is also not even really written in like, it's written in like the dialect of the area. Yeah, he wrote it, he so, wrote it like- uh, In I dialect. Yeah. I think is yeah. the word. I dialect, yeah. yep, yep. And so it's interesting, but there's times when you're just like reading it and you're like, I don't even know what this says anymore. It's just, it's just like letters. <laughs> well, I mean, page. I guess with me, because I grew up, you know, country as hell, <laughs> I, I understood it perfectly fine. But <laughs> like in my mind, I'm like, yep, I know what you're saying. <laughs> no, but the books are excellent. And we both uh, appreciate you so much for coming on here and, and chatting with us and hopefully spreading awareness uh, and interest in, um, your work on Appalachian folk magic. Thank you again, Jake. It was an absolute pleasure. Absolutely. Thank and we'd you. love to fun. talk to you again. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you. Oh, hey, almost forgot to tell you all about the giveaway. We partnered with Jake and his publisher to give away his latest book, Doctoring the Devil, and his brand new set of conjure cards. You can find the link to enter the contest on all of our social media. Make sure to share it with any friends who you think might also enjoy the loot, or even our show. And make sure you've liked and followed us everywhere to collect all those sweet bonus entries. The giveaway starts today, like right now, and runs through April 21st. We'll announce the winner in our next episode on April 26th. Good luck. This show was created and produced by me, Shane McClelland, and Lori Gum. Until next time, friends. Be weird, stay curious. These are the Q-Files. <laughs> <laughs>